Hello, I'm Paige, and this is the Euro Intelligence Podcast covering current affairs in the EU and Eurozone. I'm joined by Wolfgang and Susanna, directors of Euro Intelligence in Oxford. So this week we wanted to talk about Conte's hunt for his 10 senators. Wolfgang, how is that hunt going for him? That's not going great for him at this moment, but there's still a few days. They have a, a kind of a deadline in the middle of next week. Um, a, a very important legislation is going uh, to the Senate next next week, which is a uh, legislation uh, to reform the criminal justice system. And uh, what is happening in Italy is that Italy has, like other countries, also statutes of limit, limitations for criminal offenses, except that in Italy, trials, criminal trials with the entire appeal procedures take a very, very long time. And the statute of limitations is backdated to the date of the alleged crime Mm -hmm. and uh, effective until the final verdict of the appeals procedure. And many criminal trials can last beyond the statute of limitations. And there was a a statistic that in 2018, 130,000 criminal cases were dismissed on those grounds. Um, uh, So if in Italy you get, uh, you know, you get in conflict with the law, you have a reasonable chance to get away with it, especially if you have a good legal team that exhausts the entire criminal system. So they they want to reform this. This is a five-star project because five-star is very much an anti-corruption, you know, its origins very much in the anti-corruption world. So this is a very, very important piece of legislation for, especially for five-star, it's the under Justice Minister Bonafede, who is one of the five-star, you know, five-star ministers. And it's not clear that the government has a a majority for that. Renzi uh, didn't vote against Conte in the confidence vote. His senators uh, abstained. So Conte nominally passed the threshold. So he didn't have to resign that day. But Renzi will and his team will vote against this um, justice reform. A lot of people in Italy, especially in the political class, have problems with this because, you know, who knows? It may affect themselves or people they know. (laughs) Or their families. Or their families. (laughs) You know, a lot of Italian politicians have had conflict with the law. I mean, Silvio Berlusconi famously, uh, Matteo Salvini, uh, Renzi's father. Uh, so th- there has been a um, a constant stream of of criminal trials against politicians. Italy is quite quite unique in that respect. Mm. So so the so any reform of the criminal justice system is inherently political uh so the 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 big test for conte is can he actually you know he has a nominal uh, what they call an um, a plurality this is like mm. a, a relative majority mm-hmm. uh, but does this majority translate into any sort of actual majority uh, in in an actual vote uh, and if it does, then great, then he, he will continue to govern. And if he, he needs to find people to move on his side, but these people will have to come from the opposition parties. And there are the uh, Forza Italia, this is Berlusconi's lot. There, sh- there are apparently some, some senators are considering shifting their support towards the government. And there are the smaller party um, successor of the of the old Christian Democrats. And what happened is that their leader they have three senators, but their leader was just being investigated for links with um, with a mafia organization with Drangheta. Yeah. And um, and for Five Stars, especially being the sort of the anti-corruption party, this is sort of <laughs> the, very hard to say. Okay, we need a majority. We do, you know we're looking the other way. So they've already raised objections to recruiting these particular. 
uh, as senators into their into their government majority. Now there may there may be compromises, you know, and as you know we've seen in the past, not in Italy but in other countries, you could have minority government supported by them, you know, as long that the, the, the test isn't whether you have 161, which is the majority threshold, people mm-hmm. in your team. The question is whether you can pass legislation, yeah. and uh, if they can pass this particularly controversial bill, then they are in the clean. Now the the, the problem is, and the, the reason why the threshold is a bit higher than the four or five votes that were missing is that there were also three life senators yeah. uh, who voted to support Conte. And life senators, a bit like the House of Lords, you know, they are kind <laughs> of, you know, usually old, uh, you know, some of them are in their 90s. Uh, they are there because of something they did, and they may have been former, pre- former presidents are always included. In that list, uh, there's now one former president still alive. Uh, who didn't vote, um, you know, because I don't think Napolitano saw it as his role to support a government. Monti did vote. He was made a life senator by a Napolitano when he was president. And Monti voted to support this government. Mm-hmm. Um, but a government cannot democratically depend on life senators for support because it's, you know, these, it's a bit like the House of Lords. The House of Lords has a role to play in a legislative process. It's a re- revising role and questioning role, but you, you know, it's not a, you know, they, they don't, they're not supposed to run the parliament. They're not supposed to be the boss. They're, they're supposed to have, you know, they're supposed to help and to, to make things better. And that's the idea. Most of these life, some of these life centers are scientists who, you know, there's a Nobel Prize winning scientist among them. Uh, so, so what content needs, he really needs to get these people from other parties onto his side. And he has kind of, you know, I'm not, you know, I never believe deadlines and, you know, because <laughs> politics finds ways to circumvent them. But on the current schedule, there is a danger that that legislation might get voted down. I do not know whether the, I can't say whether the Senate can postpone that vote, uh, whether there are alternative procedures that he can employ, whether he can rent the votes from people who want to support Mm. it, but without him actually having these people in his majority. So there are different ways of for him to proceed, but the test is he does need in order for his government to actually govern. And this is a busy legislative year. There's the recovery fund to which attached will be lots of structural reforms. There's all the, there's a lot of legislation that will have to be passed on health policies. Uh, So, so this is going to be an unusually heavy legislative agenda and you can't get through this with a feeble majority. Majority. I mean, as I wrote this morning, it's not about the size of the majority. It is about the quality of the majority. We've seen countries there where you have very small but stable majorities. Um, and then you have countries with relatively large majorities that flip all the times. What he needs is a stable majority. And I, I think he might just get over the minimum threshold, but it's not very likely that he gets the majority that is stable that would support the legislative agenda for a year. So what that then means is there would have to be some other action. And the only action that everybody wants is, and you know, is for the government to continue as opposed for new elections. So the the alternative scenario is for the same political parties to form another coalition, maybe even with Renzi again. But without Conte, Mm. Uh, 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 there there cannot be, I do not see the scenario I think least likely is, uh, apart from elections, is a third Conte administration. The Italians counted in terms of the supporting coalition. So the first one was the one that uh, Five Star had with the um, uh, Lega. 
until last year. And the second one is the coalition that Five Star now has with the PD and until recently Renzi's uh, breakaway party. And the idea of a third Conti administration would be essentially the same parties. Or if he ex- succeeds in getting all these people into, you know, joining his party. But, you know, they are, you know he, might, he might promise them government jobs, but the problem is there aren't that many to go around. So minor, minor, minor jobs that they're around, right? Minor jobs. There could be, he has a couple of government jobs, uh, ministry jobs that were opened up by Renzi's, by the resignation of the Renzi people, but they didn't have many. The Renzi people didn't, didn't, you know, they didn't occupy and they were not the big jobs anyway. Uh, and Renzi isn't after jobs. This is the other thing that makes it more complicated. Renzi's concern was the way that Conti and his team at his uh, prime minister's office concentrated power of control over the recovery fund uh, in the hands of six people and the staff of 200 uh, with no parliamentary oversight. And that is what Renzi objected to, in my view, correctly. I mean, you know, I think that this, this is something, you know, there isn't uh, obviously the, you, you want efficiency in the, in the way this is handled, but a, a, a spending program that is nominally as big as the recovery fund does need democratic control. It would be, it would otherwise become a slush fund for the people who are doing it. And there are reports out there that say that Conte is trying to create his own political party. Uh, and the, the coalition partners are obviously wary of that because the polling numbers don't look good, especially for Five Star. You know, um, there are polls that have them down at about 10%. They were the biggest, they are the biggest party. They control, almost control the Chamber of Deputies, the lower house. They have a th- over a third of the people in the, the senators. So they are. They have a lot to lose if there were elections. They absolutely oppose elections. So the idea of Conti, you know, trying to run his own show is clearly not welcome. So there are a number of complex, this is a particularly complex, we sometimes call Italian politics the snake pit. Yes. And, and it's also very hard to forecast because there are many unevent, uh, unforeseeable things that happen. Yeah. People talking to home, making all sorts of offers. There's a lot of background activity that is not reported in the in the, in the the press. So one has to be careful in informing, informing a judgment. But, but from what we know, is that a period that, you know, it's very hard to see, and that's what my bottom line is, very hard to see a stable governing government majority with Conti as leader. Yeah, that is the scenario that I don't see at the moment unless something happens. Well, I apologize for this question, given the difficulty of of forecasting, but who could replace Conte? Who... uh... Who could stand in his shoes? Yeah, I'm, we're hearing names. Uh, there are, you know, there are, there are but it, it really is too early to speculate because whatever names you put out there at the moment, um, you, you know, they will almost so, certainly be superseded. I mean, the the Democrats have a, have a, have names. There are a couple of independents. I don't think, you know, there is a possibility that a PD a minister could take over the role and there are people who are generally widely respected in both both parties it's not ultimately which party gets the job it's slightly different like in germany it would be like you know it would it would have to be the largest coalition partner yeah. and there'd be no question of that and it's the largest coalition partner that determines the choice italy is more subtle in that respect for example the the you know i would not rule out that the next prime minister is actually a member of the junior party it's not impossible to think that. Uh, 
just as it, it could be a, a, a non-aligned person uh, that you know, like Conte. Conte is not a member of either of the of the coalition partners. So there are different options about it. The most important thing is that both sides trust that person to deliver on their own agenda. And Conte was good at that. He did actually, you know, he certainly delivered on five stars agendas like this justice reforms. But it needs to be somebody who is not partisan. That I think will be the main the main criterion. But I don't think that section. I mean, there is a possibility. We'll talk about it next week. But mm-hmm. you know, this could string out for for beyond the vote on Wednesday. You know. I mean, my question is, what does it mean in the EU context? I mean, with the uh, the European Commission was planning to do the recovery fund and payouts um, if all the national governments and parliaments have adopted the the legal framework by well, let's say summer, by the summer or late spring. The fear is now in Brussels that if there is delay, political delay, because of the carols and in Italy, this could be delayed even further. Uh, and then you have costs on the European level as well from this national crisis uh, because people don't get the money from the recovery fund, right? Yes, it, that is something. The European Commission is a is a player. I mean, it's, it's interesting when you look at the Italian press, they call, they, they talk about, um, they have a, a word I've never heard before. It's a, they call it an, an Ursula majority, uh, <laughs> uh, which which is a funny, funny. I, we, <laughs> so basically get a, get a majority with the sole purpose of the recovery fund. And, and the EU is, is, is a player. Gentiloni, the former prime minister, Italian prime minister is a, the European economics commissioner. So he is clearly in touch with, with his colleagues there. And, Gentiloni says rightly, completely rightly, that you know we need stability. We need a, a framework that that you know we need. This can't be uh, the worst case for the EU is if there were basically if each stage in this recovery fund is subject to shifting majorities and people yeah. you know people then if you have a majority of one or two then people there's an awful lot of pork pork barrel politics if you get this done and it's the last thing the the Commission wants. I mean the Commission is, was afraid and rightly to uh, that the that the spending that the, the you know the mafia gets its hands on there is a reasonable insurance now that that won't happen in Italy uh, they have made the government has done done a fairly good job actually to make these programs relatively transparent uh, so this isn't just you know a, a ton of sack full of money that's been been handed over um, but yeah, you're right. The Commission, we, we need this is a bigger European thing. This is not just one country, but and, you know every country will have to to produce their plans. These plans have to fulfill certain nominal criteria. I mean, this because it's the EU, it has to be it has to be a third of of the money has to go into environmental spending, which I would think is not the uh, priority for Italy. Uh, maybe in, nor- in the north of Italy, but you know, for Italy, other other issues are more important, like digital, the digital economy. You know, for Germany, I'd say environmental spending or Poland definitely. But you know, Italy, you you would want to be maybe a little bit more flexible. Um, Italy, Italy has significant structural reform needs uh, in the public sector and the judicial and the judiciary. Um, so there would have to be that would have to be accompanied with investments. Especially in the public sector, because if you wanted to reform a public sector, that might involve a lot of job losses in the public sector. Okay. Um, so there would need to be, you know, you know, various social social systems. But it would ultimately be be worthwhile. Very hard to see that Italy would come through this or out of this recovery fund with a an invigorated productivity growth that's mm. based on you know that would follow from structural reforms. We don't see the structural reforms coming. 
Uh, now, this judicial reform is a structural reform that is important. It's not the only one. Uh, you know, the one that when we talked about judicial reforms, we usually meant in the civil in the civil side, where where also cases. The problem Italy has a problem with with the length of of, of yeah. court cases, and that has provided many. Uh, especially smaller businesses, they, you know, if you don't have the resources, if you don't play the system well enough, you don't have legal certainty. Um, that's become an issue in Italy and they, that this needs to be addressed. Uh, so there are a number of structural reform issues, not the same that we had in other countries, like with labor markets and uh, the classic, the classic agenda. It's a different one for Italy. Um, but th- these issues are important because they hold back growth and they hold back, back um, economic activity on um, in the country. I remember Domenico Siniscalco mentioning bankruptcy procedures can take, you know, something like between seven and nine years. And I completely agree. Bankruptcy procedures are absolutely essential to, uh, especially now to the post-COVID uh, economy, yeah. because uh, you know it's it's it was while it was right to uh, give people a, a reprieve in the middle of the crisis because you don't want to go into bankruptcy procedure when under lockdown you know we have to be very careful about keeping companies alive afterwards that are not uh, solvent yeah. uh, so i mean we're seeing you know as we've written this week uh, a lot of you know a lot of business models are failing now this is not just the the pub you know, we just Susanna just talked about it's a famous pub in Oxford just just about to close oh, no. uh, as a result of the uh, as a result of the um, uh, uh, lockdowns, uh, and we'll see a lot of that, uh, and a lot of previously viable business models will will no longer be viable. It's a really big micro crisis. I mean, we, you know, we talk about debt, and this is all fine, but this will mean a lot of a change for a lot of people. And, you know, in that scenario, you, your policies can't be, let's have a lot of forbearance with, with yeah. it. Uh, that can't be it because you want to encourage new businesses. Yeah. You're not going to encourage new businesses by, by keeping insolvent businesses alive. At the same time, you can't just accelerate the processes of bankruptcy either because otherwise you end up with mass unemployment and, and not sufficient funds to actually, um, generate the, the the kind of support systems you need for new. So governments tra- have to tread a very fine line on this. Yeah. Well, it's uh, interesting that you mentioned the creation of businesses too, because Susanna, you were writing that actually the self-employed is uh, in France, they're called auto entrepreneurs. You know, that's skyrocketing. Uh, and I found that really interesting when you were writing about, you know, in the future, maybe what will make countries more attractive isn't golden visa schemes, but um internet infrastructure and the ability to appeal to these digital nomads. So could we discuss a little bit about what you're seeing with the third wave, how it might change the labor markets? And then also, I can't talk about this without wanting to cry, but when we might expect a third lockdown and how this is going to impact the political landscape in France? Oh, yes. I mean, this is a big subject at the moment and everyone is gearing up. The European governments seem to contemplate different options for the lockdown. The only thing that seems to be clear is that we are going to have one in one form or another, whether it's curfew or strict lockdown, we don't know yet, but definitely it's in the cards and it depends on the cases and developments we're going to see in the next two weeks. I think that's what the scientists and scientific communities in France said. And I think Germany is not far from that either. It's just really the question how how quick the mutant strains are spreading and uh, how quick also the hospital capacities is exhausted. 
Now, when it comes to what uh, what the economic effect is um, of the lockdowns as such and uh, the third wave, I mean, I think we have to distinguish the first lockdowns and last year. Uh, there was a lot of creation and creativity around because people had to work with what is. Um, this was still under the assumption that there's only one lockdown or maybe two. And there was still a positive kind of vibe. How can we make the best <laughs> yes, out of this exactly. situation? Um, so restaurants and delis had to think about how to create a, a sort of a way around uh, the fact that they can't serve and partly that was takeaway options and um, creating all sorts of little little structures, legal structures, um, to make sure that these that it's possible to um, do do delivery services, etc. So we we saw this spike in in France of a lot of new applications and they had to do with this creative movement that we saw last year. This is a structural shift, definitely, and likely to con continue that way. Once you establish these structures, um, they give you much more flexibility how you want to adapt. It's more about flexibility, how you adapt to new crises and new changes. Also, it gives you a little bit more power as well, how you want to spend your day, uh, when you want to work, uh, especially last year when the question who is looking after the children during lockdown, oh. that was quite an attractive, yes. attractive kind of option to think about. Oh my gosh, Can we yes. do um, parenting sharing and still yet both because that's that's the case in many of um, French households they're still both working so how yeah. can you make it manageable uh, and I think there were some creative um, creative solutions found um, I have friends who just did that uh, also real estate kind of showing around via WhatsApp kind of showing around <laughs> real estate via WhatsApp all sorts of things yeah. where you use the digital world and what it has to offer um, to do your job whereas before that was not possible so Yes, you can grow from there. But the question is, these young uh, mini entrepreneurs, the, the, the big question with them is that they don't have access to capital, uh, like the, the medium ones I have. So you can't just easily go to the bank and say, I want to have a credit because I want to expand. This is my project. Especially now that in the times where banks have to look after their profitability and have to look after their own kind of survival, they don't know yet the exposure that we're going to face with uh, bankruptcies coming along this year. Mm -hmm. um, so they will have to cover their back as well and how risk, um, how open they will be to look after these risk takers, these small enterprises. It's a big question and maybe it's a question of how the, the government comes in uh, as a guarantor for these things, for schemes, mm -hmm. or you um, tap into open market, uh, market solutions in order to enhance these kind of creative wave uh, or to sustain it or further it. That's uh, that definitely would be a question for this year. Now, this year is another issue is that um, we no longer look at um, the challenge of the third wave in terms of supply uh, but actually demand. Uh, so the morale is low. People are really depressed by the prospect of having another after, <laughs> after having, having to face another wave <laughs> and another strict lockdown and yeah. having another permission slip to fill in. And yeah. so, yes, <clears throat> it is definitely something that gets people. And uh, it also is clear now that our 
our expectations last year that it's just a lockdown and we just have to stick together and then it will all be fine was clearly wrong. So it adds another kind of question mark. You doubt your own predictions and you doubt whether or not you actually can last and for how long. The vaccines are, of course, this kind of um, on the horizon, um, but how long it gets going to take until we have herd immunity and, and we can circulate freely and work freely, that's another question because it's not only one shot, it's several shots until we actually mm. get there and getting everyone through or at, at least enough people through in order to get there, that's going to take some time. So how are you going to go through there before, uh, without completely hemorrhaging the economy? I mean, the French uh, government uh, calculated that um, one month of confinement costs you one, one percentage point in GDP. Uh, probably it might be right. It might be right for Germany too. Uh, so if we are talking about now a confinement that takes you a well until March, and I think that's a likely scenario, at least here in, in Great Britain, but also in France, maybe in the cards. So um, you're looking at the end of the year and for a growth rate of 2%, something like that. So uh, if you want to recover and coming back to the 2019 uh, um, GDP levels, uh, you're actually looking at 2023. What? Oh, no. That's how long it's going to take you until until you get where you actually were in 2019. Uh, We're doomed. We're doomed. Um, You'll see a big difference between the US and Europe here. I was just about to Uh, say. The the US had a pretty V-shaped, I mean, we... The beginning of the crisis, we talked about the Nike logo as sort of the thing. <laughs> yeah, that, the I mean, the Nike logo is essentially a V-shaped thing because it kind of goes up to where it was, but just does it in a slightly tilted way. That mm-hmm. seems to be what happened in the United States. They 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 are almost back to where they were, and they didn't have a double dip. We are having a double dip, and these these huge lockdowns that we're going to get make this double dip really were much worse. We had, um, there were already evidence of a double dip by the end of the year. Uh, I mean, we saw the figure for Germany and the UK, they're quite similar. Um, Germany had a, a very obvious and noticeable double dip. And that's now, now the, the, as you know, as we speak, there's a press conference going on in Berlin where the, you know, the chief virologist of, you know, of, uh, one of these chief government advisors is now predicting a daily COVID in, in incidence rates of po- up to 100,000 by the summer. And uh, oh, they, no. they said that they are, they're now afraid of the, of the British uh, mutant virus. It hasn't hit Germany yet uh, in terms of its, uh, but it's, you know, they, they, they know the numbers. It, it started in Britain in September and it sort of, they, it unfolded three months later. Yeah, and uh, that's weird. basically, you know, Germany will have, in France, they, you know, they have discovered this, but they, they are not yet in the, in the, in the phase where this virus is the, is the is the one and what they they want to do is they what the argument is that if we do the strong lockdown then we prevent this virus from spreading as much as it can because it has a 35 percent higher incidence rate so um if it's 35 percent higher without the lockdown then you get the sort of explosive growth of cases as you got in the uk precisely yeah. during that moment between the two lockdowns which was december when they opened up the the economy a little bit we had a this is where the incidences where they were the number um, number of cases of rising to the the point where 
you had over 60,000 daily cases at the beginning yeah. of the month, uh, which is now re resulting in this, this, uh, this very strong increase in fatalities right now. So the, um, the, the, the policy is very much, and that's why we expect this lockdown to be very severe. It's probably lasting until, until March. And we, we see Germany's now being, being very much, uh, um, um, supporting this. What strikes me as odd is that the ECB yesterday that Christine Lagarde, basically had a fairly neutral position on the economy. So she was it, it was very much on the one hand on the other. And yes, the, the vaccinations are going well, but on the other hand, yes, we have a bit of a problem with the lockdown. I think our view is, is on the on the economy is definitely more more skeptical because mm. we see the impact it has. Um, and it's not just uh, not just the numbers, these sort of headline numbers that Susanna created, Susanna just cited, uh, but but it's also these the impact of of, of business. Another lockdown means, and, and, you know, especially a longer one, that people who hoped that they could get back and you know might just make it, they may just not make it now. And there are, you know, if you have basically this is a year of lockdown for the gastronomy industry and tourism industry. This would yeah. have been a year of complete, almost complete. Reduced fallout, reduced reduced income. Um, with this kind of thing, we will have probably looking for another second year of very much reduced travel in Southern Europe. Yeah. Um, and if people believe that the you know the the take take the very slow slow progress of vaccination in continental Europe relative well, yeah. to the UK, that means uh. that you will not have achieved that level of immunity by the summer that the UK will have achieved. The UK hopes to achieve with the current numbers, they will hope to have achieved a certainly a protection of the vulnerable groups yeah. by March. Uh, so this vaccination program is a slow one. Even if you're fast, it's, a, it's still a very slow program. And in the UK, it will take about another six months to get everybody vaccinated uh, in in um, in continental Europe. That, may, that process may well take a year. You know, it's not clear that there is this sort of level of herd immunity in the summer that will allow... European countries to open up their travel and tourism sectors to to mass tourism uh, in the summer. Uh, I doubt that very much that this is going to happen. So we're looking at very serious con economic consequences. Uh, I'm not saying that the ECB should do anything about it now, but 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 I but I think our expectation should not be that this that that also the support we need you know will will soon come to an end. It won't. Yeah. Yikes. Um... I was incredibly grim. Thank you. <laughs> Thinking about a news story on the BBC last night. This was another breaking point for me when they were saying the Eurostar is about to go bankrupt. That just bummed me out so much. I, uh, well, that would be the perfect, the perfect Brexit story now. Right. Uh, After uh, the no ambassador. With, uh, and obviously we had a, we, we, we also wrote about the BBC story uh, uh, that the UK has now withdrawn the diplomatic status of the eu missions in london uh, so petty oh, so, petty. so petty why isn't it <laughs> disappointing uk disappointing even the us didn't follow through with it like they didn't you know, exactly they even, trump, even trump even trump does yeah if you can say uh, even trump didn't do what you're doing then you've got a problem you can <laughs> knock it off <laughs> 
And um, all these other 142 countries have yeah, moved. Yeah, that, that really struck me in your story today. Yeah. Um, it's not like the it's not like that the EU ambassador and his team are the most sort of delinquent people in this in this country. Well, yeah, I mean, they're, I don't they're think they're not the kind of the criminal fine and speeding ticket <laughs> absorbing people. I mean, you know, unlike some of the you know ambassadorial staff from various Middle Eastern uh, embassies. So I don't think the the because it's mainly de- dealing with immunity. Yeah. The pettiness is it's just petty without any upside. So, uh, but it also shows that nerve. I mean, you know, the, the point we made, you know, we made in a tweet this morning. It also shows that the relations between the two will not be healed for a long time. I mean, we've mm-hmm. seen various people writing very good comments about uh, about the UK and the EU sort of forging a joint strategy. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, both sides didn't act like that during the negotiations because the negotiations were dominated by, you know, single market, market shares, about mm. protecting the single market. There was very little consideration <clears throat> about strategic partnership afterwards. So, you know, everybody gets what they deserved in the end. And But it will be a... <laughs> a very long period of frosty relationships. And I think I would predict it to be frosty for as long as the Conservatives are in government, which will be either another four years or another eight or 10 years. Yeah. And the, the oh, it will take a new generation of politicians in the UK and probably a change of government, uh, certainly a change of prime minister. Uh, to 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 bring a closer relationship. Um, I think it will take longer because you really need to have, I mean, a lot of the goodwill capital has been burned and this whole uh, taking away the diplomatic status definitely is one of those uh, incidents that actually is against the goodwill uh, and it burns for the capital. And to heal these wounds, I mean, these are stories that will be told, told again and again in the media and yeah. everywhere. And uh, you have on both sides people who get emotionally involved in that, and it will oh, yeah. take a long time to get to heal to to get sort of uh, get this out of the memory. I mean, we've seen with Northern Ireland how long it takes to get these uh, standoffs, these emotionally charged subjects, uh, to a point where actually our gen- new generation wants to give uh, Sinn Fein, for example, a, a fair chance in Bove Island and and in, in Northern Ireland, and that has been. Um, I think that would be probably the same for the UK in, in a sense that um, it will take a long time. I mean, every divorce is difficult and it brings up all the good reasons why you want to have a divorce in the first time. And you have to work through all these causes until you come to a point where you finally accept that it's happening. One other thing that will happen is that they will start a process of regulatory diversions Pretty yeah, much immediately. That's the and big there will be, you know, there will be the, mm. the legislative process. I mean, there was a story which we, we also covered that they will start to clean the existing existing laws of EU language. Mm-hmm. And the main reason is that uh, if it if it has some if something has EU language, it is quite possible that a judge at some point may conclude that because it's EU language, we need to get the ECJ to actually interpret <laughs> what that language means. Oh, this man. is obviously what the whole yeah. Brexit process is about. So they're basically replacing in circles. <laughs> very European expressions. I mean, one example was in competition policy, the notion of state aid. Oh, uh, yeah. State is a very European term. Elsewhere called, I think the WTO calls it subsidy systems. Yeah. So they will basically replace state aid with subsidy 
systems doesn't change anything in reality just to make sure that that when you know just to make things slightly more complicated because you you have different terms over over the years these different terms will acquire different meanings uh, and uh, then you know it also makes it the other the other reason is that you make it harder for the UK to join the EU in the future because yeah. regulatory diversions means that any process of rejoining the EU would have to be preceded by a very long process of regulatory alignment. Uh, and there's simply no appetite for that. Uh, just so, great facts. Yeah. Yes. You just it's the reason why we advocated right after the referendum, uh, the single market or the, or the not because it's uh, not because an um, EEA relationship would have made a lot of sense in the long run. I agree that it didn't, but, but you would, it would have been possible for the EU, for the UK to have a real second referendum in that period. And then, yeah. and then actually get back because you haven't, by that time, they wouldn't have the, the, you know diverged. But once you start the process of diversions, it will be a normal, a normal process of coming back, mm-hmm. and that would be without without any. And the EU will not would, would not accept these opt outs. Um, so it would be a a much much longer uh, process that 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 it's now being frustrated. That's basically what's happening now. Yeah. So outlook. Short, mid, and long term, not so positive for mm. a healthy relationship and peaceful coexistence. Well, not peaceful like they're going to go to war, but you know, maybe we can expect to see more of this in the future. Uh, final topic to discuss this week: dominating the headlines. Do we want to say anything about the exit of Donald Trump and Joe Biden taking over? Um, I know we've been writing about European strategic autonomy and the transatlantic relationship for for many, many months now. Is there anything you want to say about Biden coming to power? The only thing I'm going to talk about is a Bernie Sanders meme. So any insight that you have is uh, greatly appreciated. Well, I mean, I think the hopes that people express in the Biden presidency, I don't think any human can possibly fulfill them. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, especially in Europe, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it's I, I find it, Sometimes when I hear when I when we heard some EU politicians sort of breathing the sigh of relief, um, this basically telling 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 us that they not taking the strategic autonomy very seriously because any strategic autonomy. I mean, if you you know from a strategic autonomy point of view. Uh, the last thing you want is sort of a cuddly American president who is uh, on your side and with whom you know, you defer all your decisions. You want, yeah. you know, you obviously want partnerships as and allies, and that's the very normal in politics. But strategic autonomy means that you take your own decisions and you take it based on the domestic or national grounds or political grounds, European political grounds, and you're not asking someone before you do it. Um, and therefore, you will take note of a change of democratic leadership in another country but you're not going to start commenting on it and you're not going to start welcome it or and saying fun thanks god the other guy's gone that's something <laughs> you wouldn't do to somebody you didn't you know in a, that is a, not a normal thing i mean you know yeah. even though you, you trump did obviously cause you know hurt a lot of people there and caused a lot of bruised egos uh but oh, it, yeah. it's, it's a <laughs> 
okay, fully understandable, but it's, it's um, you know, imagine they basically said this about, oh, thanks God that, you know, Sarkozy is gone or thanks God that Angela <laughs> Merkel is gone. That. I think we would take offense at that. <laughs> yeah, and, no, and, true. Um, and uh, you, know, you know, Trump was elected by, or at least voted for by, by a lot of people in America. The, the, this was not like a, a landslide victory. Yeah. Uh, it's a clear victory, but not the mm-hmm. landslide one. So I thought Angela Merkel had it about, about right. We don't often say this here at this podcast, <laughs> uh, but she said that, you know, the Americans are not to be trusted even, even now because, you know, 75 million voted for Trump. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's no guarantee that the next election will be won by the Democrats. Uh, so if a Trump supporting majority were to reassert itself with or without the man, um, you know, we would be in a very similar situation as today. So strategic autonomy is justified also on grounds that that American politics is highly unforeseeable from a European perspective. Mm. So you should, you know, welcome or you should, you know, as you always do in diplomacy, you when somebody gets elected, you congratulate them and you try to best to to work with them. But it's not like that our problems are over. And I, th- I think a lot of these comments we saw this week is, oh, finally, we no longer have this problem. <laughs> because they'll be wrong about this. And Nord Stream 2, the gas pipeline is a problem, yeah. will remain a problem. Um, Europe's sort of very cuddly policy with China, that's going to be a big problem. Mm. Um, we have our, you know, our defense spending, um, the lack of defense spending in some EU countries like yeah. Germany and like uh, Italy and Spain. That is going to be an issue. We know that during the Obama years, Biden was particularly focused on this issue and was very critical of the of the German underspent uh, on defense spending. So, you know, the issues are not going to go away. The language will be different. And, you know, Antony Blinken will be a much more polite person. But it doesn't mean that he is, and that his positions are any more European or sympathetic to the European position, especially when the European position is unreasonable. And you know, we've been saying for a long time that these European positions are unreasonable, and we're not speaking yeah. from an American perspective. We think it yeah. is un- they're unreasonable from a European perspective. So yeah, so I I think you know the, these relationship there will be lots of tensions in this relationship uh, of a different kind. They will be much more substantive. There will probably be some you know constructive dialogue going on they may compromise that's something you could not so easily do with trump mm. uh, uh, but trump you you know in the end you know we didn't he didn't do the damage from a european perspective he you know he didn't pull out of nato he this symbolic troop relocation from germany actually hasn't happened yet it's likely to be reversed um there hasn't been a lot of trade action actually we talked about it a lot but you know he didn't impose the tariffs on the european cars that didn't didn't happen there was a lot of lot of noise steel and aluminium that was that was reality in that Uh, there's now sort of a minor trade war gearing up in aircraft on both sides but you know this is not a trade war um so you know and we should obviously welcome biden's you know support for multilateral institutions like the wto the nationally the paris climate accord the who i mean yes also in terms of middle east i think we will have see a difference i think um, very much so towards turkey you already uh, they already said biden administration already said that they don't want in libya any external forces to determine the peace process so uh, they seem to be very active um, uh, ready to engage mm-hmm. yeah so much less likely than trump to start a world war and also going to be much more civil in all other matters, uh, which, which definitely is a positive sign, but you're right. I mean, I do see 
Trumpism being around to stay, I think some of his final words were that we will be back in in some form, which is spooky to say the least. And also, you know, a little bit ominous. Uh, is there anything else you guys would like to discuss this week? Or are we? Well, I think there's lots to discuss, but I thought we discussed, you know, Quite more than list. people will probably listen to. So uh, you'd be surprised if people call and they're like, can you not call? But I've seen people on Twitter saying, could you please have like three hours of in-depth analysis? Like, no, we record this on a Friday. It will never happen. Thank you, listeners. We really <laughs> love you. But <laughs> no. Tell uh, them to subscribe to the news briefing. Exactly. Uh, uh, exactly. That's three hours. That they can they can spend three hours a week uh, and get all this information. And, uh, so. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Uh, thanks very much for listening. Until next time.